Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. It's a great chat room. Ravinder, would you like to add to that today? It's a fabulous chat room because we have a great group of people who all bring their own life experience uh, into there, and then we discuss whatever you're talking about on the air, and it gives it an entire new dimension and definitely brings it into the practical, which to me is one of the most important parts of your show is, you know, practical applications to everything that we learn. So it's a great group of people. If you can come join us, if your boss isn't breathing down your neck or something like that, or if you're driving, that's definitely a no-no. That If you can join us, do come. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. What about, you know, if I'm not listening to the show live or I am listening live, but I'd like to participate in, you know, discover what you were discussing because you often post uh, videos of our guests, you post uh, earls, etc. Um, is there some way that I can, you know, discover that information after the fact? Yeah, all of our shows are put up in the archives at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com and click on the archives, you can select any show. If you go to the page for that particular show, you will be able to go into the chat room and read everything that we put up there. So you'll get to see some of the jokes that we, you know, some of the stuff that we put up in there. But we also do um, put up any relevant URLs and links or any other information sometimes the guest on the air can mention something and you don't quite catch it well you know if we're aware of it then we'll put the detail down you know if it's a name or a place or something that's of significance we will try to get that in the chat room as well so yeah just go to the archives at provocativeenlightenment.com and you'll always have the chat room paired you know on that particular page with the guest all right in today's spotlight i wish to once again take up the issue of truth It seems today that for more and more people, the idea of truth is one that is in the midst of a metamorphosis. That is, everyone seems to have their own personal truth, and very many people today insist on holding on to ideas that have been proven false. Webster defines truth this way. The quality or state of being true, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality, or a fact or belief that is accepted as true. Think about that last definition. A fact or belief that is accepted as true. What does that mean? If 20 people, or 200 people, or 200,000 people hold as true a belief they share, does that make it necessarily true? The answer is an unequivocal no. One only need think about the crazy views that have been held in the past as true, such as the Earth was the center of the universe, or those more modern alleged and shared truths, such as the Earth is only 7,000 years old, to see the error here. As such, I suggest that the third definition offered by Webster is not only misleading, it actually corrodes the nature of truth. Think about how most use the word truth. We see political pundits claiming they have the truth about this and that every day, only to discover later they were totally wrong. We find articles in mainstream print claiming this and that, only to find retractions a few days later in small print in the back of the publication somewhere. 
We hear our friends, workmates, and neighbors use the word to describe others, their opinions, and so forth, when perhaps we know for ourselves that the information is incorrect. How many times have you heard someone tell you the truth when they were, in fact, perpetrating a falsehood, intentional or otherwise? What about the idea that folks hang on to beliefs that have been proven to be false? One only needs to think again about the world of politics to find examples of this. Indeed, research has demonstrated that even when a salacious story is recanted, those who wish to believe the story continue to believe it despite the retraction. Then there are the so-called experts who share truth with us about all sorts of things. If we listen to them, we can trust that the FDA has approved GMOs. But the fact is, this is not always true. Indeed, we interviewed attorney Stephen Drucker, who won his lawsuit over precisely this issue with the FDA. Where else do falsehoods masquerade as truths? What are we to believe? My pretty bride may ask me to tell her the truth about how she looks in a new dress, and I readily admit that I might fudge the truth a little if I think it will make her happy. Most of us may cheat a little this way. Does that mean telling the truth is relative? In 1817, Samuel Taylor Coleridge coined the phrase, the suspension of disbelief. Has truth migrated to the idea that we must suspend disbelief in order to discover truth? I don't think so. I do think we must all remain open-minded while guarding against the unwitting acceptance of everything we hear, no matter how much it may reinforce our prejudice or bias. Tell them what they want to hear. Seems to rule altogether too much information, dressed as truth today, and we would be wise to remember that. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? I'm in shock. You don't like my dress? You would let me go out in public looking dreadful and you wouldn't tell me? No comment. I got you there. Looking dreadful. That's a little different than, you know, how does this look? Is this, I mean, you, you present it. Do you like my new dress? I really like this. Well, you know. Unless it's terrible. I'm hey, not hey, gonna... hey, 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 you're just squirming now. Just, just tell me you, you lost... don't do it. You just lost Look that Look me one. in the eye and tell me you don't do the same thing. Never. Okay. Never. <laughs> but, you, I mean, you do make an important point, too. You know, lots of information does get put out there, and people tend to pay more attention, I think, to the first time they hear something because I heard looked at some of the research based on the effect of retractions and the fact that people don't believe them. And it's not only a case of, you know, they believe what they choose to believe. Um, I think it goes, I think it has a bit more power than that. The fact is, you know, it can be hard to change someone's mind. It can be an issue that they're not personally attached to. But, you know, if they're first told a lie about it, then even though it's retracted, they still... I don't know, they're in a different place. So it's a complicated world right now. And trying to dig down to the truth over any issue, I think, has become harder. You know, there are many examples of that. But it's like our entertainment does a great job at persuading people in certain ways. I mean, there are still a lot of folks that believe Sarah Palin said she could see Russia from her kitchen, you know. Um, a Saturday Night Live skit, and it's suddenly a meme in the culture. It's a belief. It's repeated. It's it it, it is uh, it is a crazy world that we live in. But then today, our guest will take that issue on, and how to sort the faults from the truth. But first. Moving on, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Philip Egger, and we spoke about his book, Modern Machiavelli. CB remarked, I just completed a management communication class that said exactly the same thing about conflict. It always happens, and it is better to be aware of how one reacts, deals with conflict, than to avoid it. 
Beth wrote, it is interesting when you discover how old issues can still hold power over you. Michael wrote, love your guest. Mr. Edgar was so down to earth and yet so wise. Moving on, Karen wrote, Intertalk is the most comprehensive on the net that covers subliminal information and products is the only site I now go to when I need to get factual information. And Don wrote, I love your programs. I have been using them for years. Keep up the awesome work. These programs have changed me in ways only God himself could have. These programs are a gift from God himself. Thank you for following your dreams because you have helped so many in your quest. Well, thank you, Don. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, The Truth Seeker's Handbook with author Dr. Gleb Sibirsky. So let me tell you a little about today's guest, Professor Sibirsky. His passion about promoting truth-oriented behavior, rational thinking, and wise decision-making. He researches these topics as a professor at Ohio State University and serves as the president of Intentional Insights, a nonprofit devoted to popularizing these topics. Its main current focus is the Pro-Truth Pledge, a project that aims to reverse the tide of lies and promote truth in public discourse through combining behavioral science and crowdsourcing. We'll ask about that today. His copy reads, quote, How do you know whether something is true? How do you convince others to believe the facts? Research shows that a human mind is prone to making thinking errors, predictable mistakes that cause us to believe comfortable lies over inconvenient truths. These errors leave us vulnerable to many to making decisions based on false beliefs, leading to disastrous consequences for our personal lives, relationships, careers, civic and political engagement, and for our society as a whole. Fortunately, cognitive and behavioral scientists have uncovered many useful strategies for overcoming our mental flaws. Close quote. I honestly can't think of a subject that is more important than this subject today, as divided as our country is, as many different in quotation marks, so-called truths, as there are out there. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Gleb Tsbursky. Thanks so much for having me on, Eldon and Lavender. It's a pleasure. Am I saying your name correctly, Professor? Uh, Tsbursky is fine, yes. Yeah, okay, good, all right. Okay, you know, you only have one name, so you're certainly entitled to be called by it correctly. We like to know three things on this show, Professor. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us what urged you to write the Truth Seekers Handbook, and what are you hoping to change as a result of your work? So what urged me to write this book is the atmosphere of misinformation and incivility in our society today. Just exactly what you were talking about earlier on the show. It's become worse and worse over time. We have never seen in modern history such a situation where so many people believe falsehoods and so little people care about truth and facts. And this is a big problem that we need to deal with because otherwise our society will not survive. So that's what my book is about. How do we figure out what is true and how do we encourage other people to orient toward the facts in all areas of life? Otherwise, I'm really worried about the future of our society. I'll give a big amen to that. You heard today's spotlight. What did I have wrong? (laughs) I I didn't really notice anything that you had wrong in particular. I think you hit on the concerning facts about our society and uh, the what Ravind, the research that Ravinder was talking about, how people, the way we try to correct people's misconceptions just tends to often backfire, doesn't work, and sometimes even leads to worse consequences. So we need to be really careful when we try to correct misinformation and go about it in a nuanced and subtle way, which is some of the stuff that I talk about in the book. How do we do that? This is a 
a bit of an aside, not not really. It's I, I, I'm certain it's collateral. But one of the things I see in the research is when there is a retraction and people are confronted with a retraction, they'll often alter, offer, I should say, an alternative. And the alternative goes along this conspiracy stuff that we see everywhere. I mean, we have more conspiracies today than I can ever remember. And unfortunately, you know, thanks to guys like Snowden, well, some of the conspiracies have turned out not to be conspiracies, and so that just creates a lot more conspiracy believers. But back to what I was saying, you, you will show a retraction or you will meet someone with the truth, and they'll simply say something like, oh, yeah, but that's just a big cover-up. You know, they're just really hiding the fact. How much does this conspiracy mentality erode at our ability to, to get to truth? So there are two dynamics here. One is the conspiracy mentality, and the second one is I'll talk about after that. The conspiracy mentality is very harmful. It basically deal, addresses the situation that many people are not trusting previous sources of, misinfor- of information, and they are trusting only certain individuals who are claiming to be the sole voice of the truth. And if those individuals didn't tell them that, you know, oh, this wrong information is wrong, and they're getting it from sources which are actually highly credible, they will still believe that individual or that news source. However, often that individual or news source has proven to be incorrect. It's sort of like how cults keep on believing in their leaders, even after the end of the world didn't come about. So that is an unfortunate consequence of cults, and this is a form of belief in conspiracy theories. This is why people keep holding these beliefs from that cult-like mentality, which unfortunately our current media environment really enables because of the proliferation of misinformation on social media and digital media. So that's one. The second dynamic is that research, really interesting research on the backfire effect shows that when people are presented with corrective information, even if they accept the corrective information, it is often the case that they will forget the corrective information soon afterward, and they will only misremember the original misinformation. So the way that journalists uh, set up stories with, say, like, these are the 10 myths, and here's the corrective information. Uh, if you give people the, myth- the mythical information first, they will remember the myths, most likely, not remember the corrections. So that's the second problem with our current way of correcting people. But this is uh, not only the conspiracy mentality, but the structure of corrections is just plainly poorly set up. A selective memory prejudiced by an internal bias, I would uh, I would venture a guess. And you know, we yeah. don't like to we don't like to really deal with politics here, but the subject of your material is so relevant to our world today that I can't avoid it. So First Amendment, you know, we have the right to free speech. We depend upon our press. They're protected. Our press very often today seems to have its own agenda. It's more about entertainment often than it is about news. And, you know, pundits are disguised sometimes as news anchors, unfortunately. So we have a situation where we have a president who calls fake news. And we have evidence of fake news. You know, the bust of Martin Luther King taken, you know, just just as one example. There are many, but all right. Does it, I guess the way to ask this is, is it more hazardous to point out the fake news as the president is doing or hazardous to even call news fake in the first place? Hmm. So let's uh, talk a little bit about definitions first. So we, you talked about definitions early on in the show. So right. let's define fake news. So Collins Dictionary uh, defi- recently chose fake news as its word of the year for 2017. And uh, it defined fake news as false, completely sensationalized news, often sensationalized news that has no relation to actual reality. So things like Pizzagate that Hillary Clinton ran a 
sex shop at, you know, and that somebody went up and sh- shut up that sex shop. That's fake news. Or new, fake news is that Bush was behind 9-11, that those sorts of things would be fake news. You know, things that uh, right. the Russian Internet Research Agency is trying to plant among Americans. That would be fake news. So that's one category of fake news. Now, there's also uh, a problematic use of that terminology, which some politicians, including our president, have taken to using of calling anything that they don't like fake news, whether it's accurate or not. Right. So I would say in relation to uh, President Trump that it's quite appropriate for him to call out actual fake news made-up stuff, stuff that's not real, like the bust of Martin Luther King, that's appropriate. What is inappropriate is for him to call out accurate news stories that he doesn't like as fake news. So that's inappropriate. That really damages America. That really damages the freedom of the press, That uh, the coherence that helps our country hang together. So that's dangerous and damaging, whereas it's quite appropriate and needed to call out news stories that are inaccurate. All right, so it's uh, there's a win-lose argument in here, and I suppose you know the the problem. I, I I totally agree with what you just said. I think the problem that exists for the masses is most people don't do their homework. They don't actually check anything. I mean, I can recall watching because of what I do, watching two networks on one given day. One was a liberal, the other was a a conservative. And they were running a poll. And on the one network we had, should poor taxpayers uh, be forced to pay for rich kids to go to private school? And on the other network we had, should poor taxpayers uh, be forced to work two jobs in order to put their children into schools since the public education system is failing? Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially how the two were. Now, if you happen to be conservative and you watch the one, well, of course, you were, you know, totally against poor taxpayers having to work two jobs. And if you were liberal and you watched the other, well, obviously, you know, poor taxpayers shouldn't be forced to pay for rich kids. Okay, but the bottom line was both of these surveys were about school vouchers. And, you know, people went off to the water fountains at work and and wherever they go, and they argued for or against school vouchers based on their sound bites, that that they had taken out of their news, that silly little way that question was posed in the poll. Instead of going to the library and looking up school vouchers, you know, what are they used for? Where does the money come from? Well, you know, et cetera. And so instead of becoming informed, and so I guess the problem at large to me, in my mind, is that too many people will not take the time or the interest to determine when was he talking about genuine uh, fake news and when was he exaggerating or lying about what constituted fake news because he just simply didn't like the story. Yes. So this is the very worrisome part. And the thing is that uh, anyone who tends to be opposed, there's a psychological phenomenon called confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information and interpret information in ways that conforms to our beliefs. So anyone who's already opposed to Donald Trump will think that anything he says is fake news is actually real credible news. And I've actually heard people say this. Other people who support Donald Trump will think that anything that he says is fake news is is fake news. Unfortunately, neither will be sophisticated enough to differentiate between the actual times when he correctly labels something as a false news story, like the bust of Martin Luther King, and other times when he he does he doesn't label something as the correct news story for example when he says that the whole russia investigation is a hoax when plenty of prominent republicans have strongly supported the investigation as something that needs to be done so those are two that that is why i say that donald trump is sometimes appropriate in calling out fake news and sometimes not and overall it's quite dangerous when he doesn't because he destroys his own credibility and he destroys the credibility of the free press in the United States. And we need both the credibility of the office of the president for the country to be healthy and the credibility of a free press for the country to be healthy. So that is really harmful for both in both cases. 
Amen. We have a break coming up, Professor. As soon as we come back, I, I, you know, I want to move more directly into your book and get away from this politics. So I'm going to ask you about some of these biases that people have, and in particularly why people tend to believe they're exempt uh, from being a member of the the biased club, whether it's an implicit bias or a direct bias. Uh, we're speaking with Professor Gleb Sibirsky about his work and book, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. It's a great book, a great read, I think a very important read. And, and our discussion in this first half of the show should have fleshed out why it's so important to all of us. But we'll also get into that in the next half. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Intentional Insights. One word, intentionalinsights.org. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing guns and racism. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Gleb Sapersky about his work and book, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. Uh, this is a five-star book. You, I am convinced that if you want to be a citizen in this country, you really owe it to yourself to be involved with um, as, as solid a basis of fact and information as you can, especially at this time and in the history of our country, and this is a wonderful manual place to begin in understanding what we need to know and how to separate the truth from the false. Okay, 
You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at intentionalinsights.org. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. As you know, music psychology is a new hobby of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of Imagine by John Lennon. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? So... The music is really important to me because it takes us outside of our current contexts. Now, imagine if we didn't have religion, if we didn't have countries, if we didn't have capitalism. Those are such basic fundamental aspects of our lives. But if we can take ourselves out of our current context and have an external perspective and see that, hey, there are other cultures out there that don't have the religion as a central aspect of what they do. There are other cultures out there that uh, aren't so capitalist-centered, and of course all are country-centered, but perhaps less patriotism-centered, we would live very different lives, and it would makes us really think about what kind of different lives we would lead. And of course, having that more complex external perspective is really important for figuring out the truth and getting away from what we mentioned before, confirmation bias, because the structures of society religion, culture, religion, country, patriotism, and the financial system cause certain confirmation bias effects as well. They make us presume that these are the only right ways of going forward and the only structures within which we should think and therefore prevent us from seeing other aspects of reality that are not made visible by these institutions. Well said. All right. You know, confirmation bias is but one of the many biases people have and are subject to when it comes to some of the mental gymnastics that actually shortcut critical thinking. I think your book provides some truly valuable insights, uh, as you've heard me endorse, uh, and, and methods to avoid mental flaws. But I want to I want to get to that in a minute. Instead, right now. How common is it, Professor, for people to be influenced by some form of mental mistake and yet believe they're immune to that? It's incredibly common. We are all uh, perceive ourselves. Our our self-perception of ourselves is of rational, logical beings. That's the general self-perception people have of themselves who are not trained in psychology. Now, in reality, who we are is are people driven by emotions. Emotions are the most important thing that drive us. Our intuitive gut reactions, emotional drivers, they are much more powerful than logical, rational thinking for any of us, for all of us. They are much more powerful. So if you think that you are rational and logical, I'm sorry to disabuse you of that notion, but your emotions, my emotions are going to be driving me and you much more than they will be than the rational, logical part of you will be driving you. Now, if you are aware of this, you can fortunately start to notice these biases, these blind spots, and work on addressing them. But only if you are humble and understand that your mental map of reality will never match the actual reality and your gut intuitions will often steer you astray. You uh, you have a, a suggestion for, and it actually comes out of the video that we played during the chat, uh, or during the break in our chat room. When, you know, when a, a taillight is out on an automobile in certain areas in this country, it is in fact true uh, that there's a form of racial profiling, and a black man may be more likely to be stopped than a white man uh, driving with that broken taillight. Your tip, uh, I, I would like you to share with everyone, if you will, as to how we override these biases that we might have toward, well, you know, a Muslim population or a black population or any other uh, population that because of our ethnic ethnocentric upbringing or cultural, you know, 
uh, our environmental, we have a prejudice tour. Share that with our audience, will you please? Of course. So the first thing to recognize is why it happens. And that happens because of our tribal sensibilities. So we are all tribal creatures. Our minds aren't adapted for the modern world. They're adapted for the savannah. When we used to live in small tribal groups of a few dozen and you know just over 100 at most. So right. we are used to treating people like ourselves as better than others. And the more the people are like ourselves, the better we treat them and the better we think of them. And that's a psychological bias called the halo effect, where yep. the more characteristics someone has in common with us, the better our whole opinion is of that person. And the opposite of that is the horns effect. The less characteristics that person share with us, the lower our opinion of that person as a whole. Now, that results in a lot of irrational decisions. So you gave an example of someone driving with a taillight. So if a police officer happens to be white and the person he's pulling over happens to be black, that lowers the police officer's opinion of the person and the police officer will intuitively be more likely to pull that person over. The same situation happens in hiring. If someone happens, if the, your employee, the person who might be trying to hire you, is a woman and you're a man, then there's a likelihood that she'll be less likely to hire you than she would a woman. And this happens for all sorts of characteristics. You know, here in Columbus, uh, I teach at Ohio State University, and here the team here is the Buckeyes, and I'm contractually obligated as a professor to root for the Buckeyes. <laughs> so uh, our big opponents are is Michigan up north, so the Michigan University. So it would be intuitive for me to not like and therefore decrease my opinion of Michigan fans, and therefore uh, there was a really interesting study where there were a group of students who was wearing Ohio State at Ohio State wearing Ohio State T-shirts and so on, and uh, there was another student who was flagrant, uh, flagrantly cheating on a math test, like very badly, very obviously. And then all the other students started cheating like that person. Now, a similar study was with that student who was cheating wearing a Michigan shirt, and all the Ohio State students did not cheat. They were like, yes, no, we'll be honest. We won't be like that Michigan guy. <laughs> so this is just an example of our tribal sensibilities and how we are influenced by each other. So right. this is the cause of a great deal of racism, prejudice, sexism, and all the other terrible, terrible isms that plague our society, this tribalism. To address that, what we need to do is give that person intuitively more credit than we would based on how different they are. So if I'm white and somebody else is black, I would give that person more credit than my gut intuitions tells me to give them credit. And again, you have to go against your gut here. If somebody is a Michigan fan, and I know that, and I'm a Buckeye fan, I will give them more credit. If somebody is you know, a woman and I'm a man and so on. So the more differences there are with other people, the more credit, intuitive credit you have to give them in order to actually have the correct evaluation of that individual. Now, this is really a cognitive intervention, if you will, where you're, if I understand you correctly, where you're actually recognizing in advance that I have this bias, and people that don't believe they have a bias, go take the implicit bias test. It's on uh, the Internet, and there are several different forms of it. But you recognize your bias. You know that you have this bias uh, based on, you know, as you say, tribal instincts, and so what you do, if I understand you correctly, is the minute the white man sees the black man, he says, in his in his mind, he says, add 10 points, add 15 points to this person. This person is, is that much better. This person is better than, than if I hold a white male as a, a standard of 100, then I'm going to hold him as a, this black male a standard of 110. And we actually force ourselves, talk ourselves into, however you want to say it, intellectually decide to add that in order to find a level playing field, a parity. Have I got that right, Professor? You're absolutely right, Eldon, and that's exactly the kind of strategy that we need to pursue 
in order to overcome all these isms. And again, there are certain ones that are very typical and obvious, like black and white, but certain ones that aren't going to be obvious. Like if somebody is going to like Michigan versus Ohio State, and those are also things that depending on how uh, strongly we feel about the sports rivalry, that will influence how strongly, how much points we should give that you know, white male who is a Michigan fan, perhaps I will give that person 115 points, <laughs> depending right. on my own predispositions. <laughs> okay. So this is really, yes. So this is really important. This is math uh, is something that really helps us address a lot of these biases because we can put numbers on them. Putting right. numbers on our evaluation of reality is a very effective strategy of addressing thinking errors in all areas. All areas. And that's the important thing, because sometimes these biases are just about weight. Maybe you have a bias about a heavy person, you know, or or about a skinny person. It's wherever you have the bias. The only way that we correct this is by, uh, you know, literally choosing to do so, being consciously aware and awake, right? Exactly. And the way I like to think of this or present this so I, I do consulting and coaching for people and I do speaking on this topic and this really it really helps them to understand it when I talk to them that it's not your fault it's not anybody's fault that you have the bias it's not anybody's fault that you have you know kind of racism sexism you know ethnic whatever by all of right. these things they're not anybody's fault they're natural that's the natural way that humans are now, it's also not natural for us to eat with our hands or to brush our teeth. <laughs> but we have learned to be civilized. We have learned to eat with our hands, to eat with forks and knives. We have learned to brush our teeth. In the same way, we can learn to avoid these biases. We can learn to be the civilized people as opposed to the natural people. We don't have to go with our guts. We can be civilized. And that is a very effective way of thinking about why we would want to do this. Because we are living, in order to live in a multicultural society, we're not living in the savannah anymore. In order to live in this society, in this civilization, we have to work on being civilized. And this is just one way of being civilized. Marvelous metaphor. I love that. All right. We've interviewed several experts regarding the value of truth in many different contexts, as well as those that insist research demonstrates that we all lie, such as the work of Dan Ariely. Mm -hmm. If everyone lies, two-part question, Professor. First, what value is there in finding the truth, individually or culturally? And second, how do we know when we know it? So let me get first to Dan Ariely's work, which is excellent and the basis for some of my work, and I cite that in the book, he talks about how our lying, our deceptions, are always context-dependent. So the example that I gave with the Ohio State, Michigan State students shows how context-dependent lying is. Cheating on a, text, on a test is lying, is deception. So when people we know who are part of our tribe engage in deception, we are more likely to engage in deception. And when we think we're our deception will benefit our tribe members. We're more likely to engage in deception and vice versa. And when we are more likely to be caught, we are less likely to cheat. So all of our lying, all of our deception is context dependent. So that's the first thing to realize. So the second part of that going to your question is that if we change the context, then we can prevent people or at least reduce the amount of misinformation in our society. And that's what a lot of my work is about with the pro-truth pledge, which we can talk about. How do we change the context for both private citizens and public figures alike to reduce the amount of misinformation in our society by incentivizing civilized behavior as opposed to natural behavior, helping people overcome their biases that really harm and undermine us. So that's the second part. And the third part that I want to get to is how do we know the truth? Well, the best way that we can get to the truth is by looking at what we share and what we can all determine. Now, the only ways that we can have a common understanding of reality is for using our senses. We have five senses, 
you know, are what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, and what we smell. So using those five senses, we can all share that, regardless of our ideological perspectives, regardless of our different values. We can see, you know, a video and see what the video says and hear what it said and smell and so on. And this is what we need to use. What we share, the only things that we can use is what we share. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. So if you tell me you're thinking something about, uh, you know, Ravender's dress, you know, I don't know what, whether you're actually thinking that or not, but I can observe your behavior. And that's the only things that we can focus on as facts. And that's the way that science works. Science only uses what is observable to our senses to determine the facts about physical reality. So that's a really good way, really good approach to, to kind of use a scientific methodology. What are the facts that we can observe with our senses? And that's what we can determine as being factual or true. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm sure that we have some listeners out there that, you know, are hanging on the words that you have to share with us, especially about the value of truth in the political arena. But I think, you know, it, it may miss uh, many that there are costs to uh, each of us in other areas, uh, relationships, careers, uh, etc., for being willing to just accept the comfortable lies over the inconvenient truths, your metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that so? So when we are willing to accept comfortable lies over inconvenient truths in areas that hurt people, you know, so Ravender was giving the example of, you know, you don't want to let your wife go out in a dress that's actually really will cost her social capital by and, you know, get people to help cause her to think that she she looks bad. You don't want that. That will be harmful for her. That will be harmful for you in the end because, you know, she'll discover that her dress actually, you know, when people give her feedback, she'll discover that, okay, you, you gave you you me in her. a lot of trouble, Professor, but I don't mean I'm to I'm sorry. Sorry, Alden. No. <laughs> no, that's okay. Please continue. Sure. So what I like to tell people is um, to think about whether their deceptive statements are going to have negative consequences for the people uh, whom they deceive. So, for example, if you're running late and uh, it's because you overslept, but you tell your boss it's because of traffic, it, it's really not that big a deal. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. You know, that's, that's just not a big deal. Now, if you do something like tell your boss that the project is going excellently and awesomely and it's actually going off track in a really bad way, that's going to harm you in the end and harm your boss. So that's a really malicious lie. That's harmful. So if you want to think about white lies, which are not harmful, it's not a super big deal. I'm not focusing on that. What is really bad are the black lies that actually harm people and harm you in the end. All right, Professor, we're running short on time, and I've got so many more questions for you. I'm going to try and jump to just what I think are the most important ones for our audience in order to close this. And that would be, you know, there are several strategies that you use uh, in the book to avoid thinking errors. And I want our audience to read uh, your book. So let's just go to how can we change our society as a whole to promote truth-seeking over falsehoods? So, yes. So that is the Pro-Truth Pledge Project at protruthpledge.org. Again, that's P-R-O-T-R-U-T-H-P-L-E-D-G-E.org. And that's an innovative project in which I'm involved, which I helped create and others as well, which has, combines behavioral science with crowdsourcing to orient everyone toward the facts. It unites everyone who cares about truth and facts. It encourages them to go to the website at protruthpledge.org and take a pledge to stick to 12 simple behaviors that research in behavioral science shows are oriented toward the truth, like fact-checking, verifying your information before you share it, acknowledging when others share true information, even when you disagree, asking people to retract information that reliable sources have disproved, even if those people are your ideological allies, and celebrating those who retract incorrect statements and update their beliefs toward the truth. Now, the nice thing about this is that 
it's for both private citizens and public figures. And public figures include people like myself, like Eldon, like politicians and journalists, anyone who has an impact on public discourse that's above average. So the more private citizens take it, the more public figures will want to take it because public figures who take it get a reputational boost as people who stick take and stick to the pro-truth pledge. It's kind of like the Better Business Bureau for public figures. So it gives them credibility and reputation for being honest. And they're being held accountable by being fact-checked by the private citizens who take the pro-truth pledge. So it's kind of like an opt-in mechanism for honesty that provides appropriate rewards with accountability. I love it. I love it. Professor, in about 30 seconds, can you tell our audience where it's best for them to get your book and learn more about you, uh, where you might be speaking, etc. Sure. So folks can always learn about me at intentionalinsights.org. Again, that's intentionalinsights.org, the nonprofit which I run. They can get my book on Amazon. It's the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide. And they can take the pledge if they care about facts and truth and want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem at protruthpledge.org. And I invite you, Eldon and Ravender, to also join us and take the pledge as well. I'll be doing that, and I encourage everybody out there to do the same thing. Go take the pledge. The book, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, I strongly recommend this book to everyone out there at all interested in the truth. I want to thank you, Professor, for your willingness to share with us today, for your work and um, your candor. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Professor, one last thing. If I'm in deep trouble, deep trouble, I'm going to be reaching out to you. Okay, until (laughs) next time. Wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.